0: I thought maybe, just maybe, in this couple of months, we can get done with Hebrews. Well, I got about halfway through chapter 11, and that was that was the end of my tenure, so it didn't happen. But this book has helped my life. It's been a great blessing to me, and it's amazing what you find when you dig into the Scriptures and begin to study what God has said unto us. As I studied this, I, I read a lot of A.W. Pink, his Commentary on Hebrews is tremendous. And he said this in the introductory chapter to his exposition of Hebrews. He said, quote, The need for an authoritative, lucid, lucid and systematic setting forth of the real relation of Christianity to Judaism was a pressing one. Satan would not miss the opportunity of seeking to persuade these Hebrews that their faith in Jesus of Nazareth was a mistake, a delusion, and a sin. Were they right while the vast majority of their brethren, according to the flesh, among whom were almost all respected members of the Sanhedrin and the priesthood wrong? Had God prospered them since they'd become followers of the crucified one? Or did not their temporal circumstances evidence that he was most displeased with them? Moreover, the believing remnant of Israel had looked for a speedy return of Christ to the earth, But 30 years had now passed, and he had not come. I think that's a good synopsis of where the Hebrews to whom Paul... Well, I say Paul, I I, I assert that. I don't know that for sure. I believe he was the one that wrote Hebrews. But I believe that's a good synopsis of what this book is about. Many of those who were born Jews had professed faith in Christ. Upon that profession, they had suffered persecution at the hands of uh, those Jewish leaders. And no doubt they were wondering if they had missed it. No doubt they were wondering if they had made a mistake. And they looked around and they saw the majority of their kinsmen still uh, going to the temple and sacrificing and offering uh, animal sacrifice to God. And here they were suffering and struggling and being cast out of their families and out of their synagogues. And no doubt the devil had jumped on a few shoulders and said, man, you've missed it. You need to uh, denounce this profession and go back. Many there were in... Uh, were at high risk of uh, denouncing the faith they had professed. Others were not yet convinced at all that Jesus was the Messiah. And so the book of Hebrews is there uh, to guide them into truth and to point them to the, uh, to the true Messiah that had come. And then others who had truly believed upon the Lord Jesus, they would find great encouragement and help from this letter that would in, uh, help them endure and, and, and endeavor to persevere under the persecution that they faced. So really the general audience were those Jews who were lost, those who had made false professions that were not genuine, and then those who had made genuine professions that needed some encouragement and help along the way. But that does not mean that there's not much for us in the book of Hebrews. The great need that A.W. Pink mentioned in his introductory notes is met in a definite way in this book. You see, it is clear that the temple had not yet been destroyed. When the book of Hebrews was written, the author refers to the temple activities in the present tense throughout the book. Many of the Jews to whom is addressed were tottering, were wondering, were looking the other way. This book is written to prove that in every instance, Christ is better than the old covenant. He is better in that. He is the substance of all which of, of which all else were but shadows. He is the sum of every symbol. He is the realization of what were mere representations in the Old Testament economy. However, this fact in no way diminishes the validity or the value of the Old Testament. Immediately, the Hebrew writer links the Old and New Testament in such a way as to permanently solidify the place of both in the ultimate scheme of things. He says, God spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. But he then goes on and says, That same God hath in these last days spoken unto us, by his Son. Inevitably, the link together is the old and the new in the person of Jesus Christ. He'll here make it abundantly clear that the first advent of Jesus Christ in no way abrogated the law and the prophets. He is, after all, the fulfillment of them, not the destroyer of them. What could not be accomplished under the old covenant is completely accomplished under the new. Hebrews proves that this was the intention of God from eternity past. Christ is plainly and simply better. He is of better character. His is a better covenant, and His is a better course. That's what we find in the book of Hebrews. The essence of this epistle is this. Abandon the types and abandon the shadows and wholeheartedly embrace the risen Christ. The opening sentence of this epistle sufficiently sets the tone for the entire letter. Now, as we look at these four verses, I want to give you three things. The first two, I'll move quickly through, and then we'll look at the third. Notice, first of all, the miracle by which God speaks. The scripture here immediately confronts us with God. God, he says. This is that great Jehovah the creator of all things the God that was before time, the God who will be when time is gone, the God who is self-existent, who needeth not anything in order to be satisfied and do all that he does and be all that he is, the God that would step out on nothing and create everything out of the nothing that was and spin this thing into orbit. That's the God that we're confronted with here in the book of Hebrews in this very first verse. We're confronted with God. And we find here that God hath spoken unto us. Isn't that amazing? Now, one writer said this. He said, a God who is silent is an unknown God. Think about that. How would you know a God who did not speak? But I'll say this. I'll go a step farther. A God who has not spoken is not only unknown, but he is unknowable. You cannot know God if he does not speak. But we find that God hath spoken. If God be God and we be mere humans, then it is impossible for us to truly comprehend him by ourselves. As sophisticated as our Creator has made us to be, both mentally and emotionally and even spiritually, He remains an enigma to the natural man. His ways, Paul said, are past finding out. You cannot know God in the power of your strength and your flesh in a natural way. God must speak. God must reveal Himself if we're ever to know Him. That is the inherent problem with most religions in general. Man's ideas of who God is, apart from divine revelation, result in nothing more than gross and wicked idolatry. We are just unable to break out of the natural and into the supernatural. That's why Christianity is so distinctly different than any other religion. MacArthur in his commentary on this text said this. He said, Every religion is but man's attempt to discover God. He said Christianity is God bursting into man's world and showing and telling man what he is like. Because man by himself is incapable of identifying, comprehending, or understanding God at all. God had to invade the world of man and speak to him about himself. Isn't that wonderful? Religion is just man trying to get to God, but Christianity is God coming to man and saying, this is who I am. This is what I am like. That's who we serve today. That's the religion we have. That's what it is to know the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. But then what is it to speak To speak is to make known that which one wishes for someone else to be acquainted with. When we say that God has spoken, we are referring to God's revelation of himself and his will unto his creatures. God wishes to be known. As a matter of fact, that is the essence of salvation. Jesus said in John 17 and verse 3, And this is life eternal, That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. The salvation that we enjoy, this eternal redemption that we have, is based on and centered around the reality that you and I have been made to know the living God in the person and the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. I know God today, I don't know the president. I don't know a governor. I've never met a governor. I've never shook hands with a governor. I've never met uh, very many mayors in my life, maybe one or two. My brother, I stand before you this morning as someone who has an intimate relationship with the God of heaven. I know him and he knows me this morning. And it's all because he has spoken. He has spoken. The miracle of God's revelation that God would speak to you and to me. Secondly, I would mention the method by which God speaks. He tells us here in our text God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, God has spoken. That brings us to the method. Our text tells us that God spake in time past, at sundry times, and in divers' manners. The phrase sundry times translates a compound word which denotes the multiple parts of a thing. In other words, God's Old Testament revelation was progressive. He gave a little here, and he gave a little there, sundry times, pieces, 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 and overall, they made the whole that is revealed in Christ. But all they had was a piece here and a piece there. Then the the word, the phrase, divers manners. It came to the prophets either directly in dreams or visions. Sometimes they received their messages from angels. Sometimes they got a message from an animal. You remember Balaam's donkey on the road that spoke to him. There are different ways, diverse manners in which God would speak. Uh, Ezekiel had uh, supernatural activities around him when the dry bones did collect themselves, and God put flesh upon them, and they marched as a great army. I thought about Jeremiah, his visit to the potter's house. God had a message at the potter's house. I thought about Hosea. Whose very domestic life would put on display God's heart toward Israel. He was broken and heartbroken at their idolatry, just as Hosea would have been at the adultery of Gomer. And God saying, Despite all of your sin and your wickedness, I still love you, I'll still have you, I'll still take you. And so God spoke in divers manners, various ways. However, it came to them, it was delivered by the prophets in a direct manner, and pinned down for us. For Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I believe in the inspiration of Scripture this morning. Verbal and plenary, God inspired every single word. And what I have in my Bible is every word God wanted me to have in the exact order that God wanted me to have it in. Amen. He inspired words. Those prophets pinned them down. I would also remind us here of the debt we owe to the Jew. The Word of God came to the fathers, he says in verse 1. This refers to the Jewish ancestors of the Hebrews. Hebrews. In Romans 3, 1, Paul asked, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? And in verse 2, he answered his own question and said, Much every way, chiefly because it unto them were committed the oracles of God. You and I have a Bible today because God called Abraham out of the earth, of the Chaldees and made a nation out of him and called Israel. We've got a Bible. Thank God for that. The Bible is a Jewish book. You might say, that's why Jesus could say in John chapter 4, verse 22, salvation is of the Jews. Then the phrase, in time, passed there in verse 1. It informs us that at the time this epistle was written, the Old Testament canon was closed. God had done it that way, but now in these last days, things had changed. It was not that God by his Spirit was no longer going to move holy men to speak, but that the very language in which he spoke had been altered. His method had been modified as the message was progressively clarified. God, who had previously spoken in various ways and at various times by the prophets, had now spoken unto us by his Son. The method in which God speaks. And then thirdly, and this is where I want to spend our time the man through whom God speaks. Notice it in verse number 2. He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world's, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, the man through whom God speaks. Whatever change was in the mind of the Hebrew writer here had already taken place. For God hath spoken unto us by his Son. The word spoken is in the aorist tense denoting past completed action. No longer was God's revelation to man to come progressively in parts. Now it was given completely and totally in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In Him we have the culmination of all divine revelation. The primary shift in view here is that God's revelation by the prophets mainly consisted of what they said. But in Christ, it is found not only in what he said, but it's found in who he is. God wants us to know who he is, not just what he has said. Oh, and we see who he is in Jesus The apostle is careful to make it clear that he is not simply casting Jesus as the next messenger in a never-ending line of messengers. He's endeavoring to press upon them that Jesus is the final word given from heaven. You say, well, there was a lot of stuff written after Jesus, sure, but all of it was about him. All of it was telling us what he said and what he did and the implications of all that he did. But all we needed to know, God was found in Christ. It was done in Christ. Now we can know him. The final word was given from heaven. This is, I believe, one connotation of the phrase, these last days. Jesus, the great Logos, the Word which in the beginning was, the Word which was with God and, the, and uh, the Word which was God, the same Word which was made flesh and dwelt among us is God's final Word to humanity, both Jew and Gentile alike. In Matthew 17, verses 1 to 8, we see the illustration given of this when Jesus took Peter, James, and John upon the mountain. He was transfigured before them. And there they saw the Lord Jesus, heard him having a conversation with Elijah and with Moses. And you remember their reaction. You remember how Peter said, oh, it's good for us to be here. We need to build some tabernacles, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and one for thee, Lord. And you remember that out of heaven there came the voice of every God. And he said, this is my beloved son. Hear him, amen. God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. That's what he was saying to Peter and to James and to John. In this event, we find what is really a good summary of the point of the epistle of the Hebrews. It was there that the disciples had their nearest encounter with the deity of Jesus. It was on that mountain that God's revelation of himself was most vividly afforded to mortal men when Christ stood in all of his glory All of his majesty transfigured before them. I'm told that the Greek construction in verse 2 lends itself to the notion that the phrase by his son is used in the same sense as in son. As in God has spoken unto us in son or in the language of his son. Jesus introduces for us a whole new world of communication between ourselves and God. The language of his son. Oh, brother, God's talking to us in Jesus. (laughs) He's speaking to us in a tongue that this world doesn't understand and can't comprehend. He's speaking to us in the language of his dear son. Scriptures tell us in another place that he has translated us out of the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Brother, he became flesh and dwelt among us. He learned our language so that he could teach us his, and he translated us into his kingdom. He is the voice of God calling out to us, communicating himself unto us. Now upon the mention of the Son of God here in verse 2, the inspired author got a little bit happy, I think. He said, now that I brought up the Son to you, I'm going to go ahead and get down to the business of exalting him and extolling him and magnifying him and telling you all about this Jesus, the Son of God. Who is this Christ by whom God now speaks? Many needed to be confronted with him for the first time. Maybe you're here this morning in that shape and you've really never thought about just who he is and you've never really thought about in heart from heaven. Maybe this will be the day that you'll hear about him in your heart for the first time. Others needed to be reminded about the one in whom they professed faith, which was now seemingly tottering. Yet others had clearly not yet possessed a real and lasting faith and needed to be encouraged to go on into the realm of saving dependence upon the finished work of their great high priest. What better approach could have been taken than what is employed here? The inspired author simply preaches to them Christ. He takes them from his eternal sonship to his incarnation, to his death and his resurrection. Here's what the Hebrew writer does. He preaches the gospel unto them. Brother, isn't that wonderful? The same gospel that saved you, it's the same gospel that would save them. And he just simply preached the gospel. It's amazing how many different things we think we need to do and many different tactics we think we need to employ to get men to come to God. When God has only prescribed one means, it is the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of God unto salvation. He died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried, and rose again the third day. Brother, that'll do the job this morning. Black, yellow, red, white, this continent or another, this town or another, it does not matter. The gospel is what is needed, and the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Isn't that great? I'm glad that's all I've got to do. I don't have to figure out which way the wind of society is blowing and try to counter that. No, I can just stand up and proclaim the gospel. Hallelujah. And God will see fit to save sinners. He just preached the gospel to them. There are five characteristics, or what I like to call excellencies of Christ mentioned in this verse. Really, there are seven, but I'm combining uh, two different sets of them because I didn't want to keep you here all day. But I want to give you these five quickly. First of all, we find in this verse, in verse number two, we find the sonship of Jesus Christ. We see this in the phrase, his son. And he said then to be heir of all things. Jesus did not become a son of God. He has eternally been in familial relationship with the father. It's set forth in many passages and laid out in many ways in Scripture. But what I think of the most decidedly uh, sonship verses is in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5 where we read, But when the fullness of the time was come, God made Jesus to be his son. That's not what that verse says. It says God sent forth his son. That tells me he was already his son before he sent him forth. Brother Jesus has eternally been in familial relationship as the Son of God. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. God the Father sent Him forth. He was already son. Though the term son may be applied to all of humanity as the offspring of God. We see that in Acts 17. It's applied to the angels in many places. They're referred to as the sons of God. They are the special creation of God and then it's applied to believers as the adopted children of God. But the term here has an exclusive connotation when it's applied to Jesus Christ. He is the beloved. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the Son of God in a way that none else could ever be. God's Son, His only begotten Son, the Son of the Highest, in whom the Father is well-pleased. Despite the Kurdish teachings of the Mormons and others, we will never attain this degree of sonship. This is exclusive to Jesus Christ. He's a son. He's appointed heir of all things. Vincent, in his work studies uh, of, the, of the Greek New Testament, said of this phrase, God eternally predestined the son to be the possessor and sovereign of all things. God made this appointment and gave all things to the Son before those things existed. Jesus received all things as a reward for his completed work. And at the end of the age, he will deliver up the kingdom to the Father, having received all things of which he was made an heir in eternity past. That's big, ain't it? A lot bigger than I am. I can't get a hold. I can't even I heard a fellow open up a text the other day. He was in Isaiah six. He said, I'm gonna to try to hug this mountain. Amen. I feel like I'm trying to hug a mountain when I preach on this kind of stuff. We got a big God, brethren. We've got a big God, sisters. He's appointed heir of all things. This is not the end of the matter, though. In Romans 8, verses 16 to 18, we read, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. That verse tells us that everything Christ has, we have in him. Amen. Somebody said something about this is my world, Brother Dan. Uh, Danny mentioned it. He said, "It's your world." No, I said, "No, it's my father's world." Amen. But in a sense, it is my world. He owns it. He's appointed Christ heir of it, and thank God, in Christ, I'm a joint heir with Him. Amen. And secondly, notice the skillfulness of Christ. For we read, by whom also He made the worlds, or by Him, or by whom also He made the worlds. Jesus. Is the mediatorial agent of creation. Now I'm going to say some things here in a minute that might throw you for a loop, but I've, I've I really think I, I really think I'm right here. Bear with me. First of all, and you won't have a problem with this: Christ is the Word of God. We understand that, don't we? Christ is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Christ is the mediatorial agent of creation. We also read in verse 3, of Hebrews 11, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So Christ is explicitly said to be the word of God and by this word the worlds were made. Everybody okay so far? That's, that's pretty clear cut, isn't it? But then I would say this, not only is Christ the Word of God, as we think about his skillfulness in creating and making the worlds, but he is the wisdom of God. Now bear with me. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, this is what we read, but under them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So in the same way that Christ is the Word of God personified, he is the wisdom of God personified. Christ is the wisdom of God. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Proverbs chapter 8 quickly this morning. To really understand what it means for Christ to be the wisdom of God, we need to know what the scriptures have to say about the wisdom of God. And in Proverbs chapter number 8, we're going to read verses 22 and following, but I just want to read a couple verses here at the beginning to get a little bit of a foundation for what I'm about to say. In verse 1 it says, "...Doth not wisdom cry, and understanding put forth her voice? She standeth in the top of high places, by the way, in the, in the places of the past. She crieth at the gates, at the entry of the city, at the coming at the doors. Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man." And so we find here wisdom personified as standing by the gate, calling men unto God, calling men to attain this wisdom, to enjoy this wisdom, to possess this wisdom. But then go down to verse 22. Notice what wisdom says about wisdom. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. I was set up from everlasting, from the beginning or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the highest part of the dust of the world, when he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when He established the clouds above, when He strengthened the fountains of the deep, when He gave to the sea His decree that the waters should not pass His commandment, when He appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by Him as one brought up with Him. <laughs> that sounds like sonship, doesn't it? I was by Him as one brought up with Him. And I was daily his delight. This is my Lord's Son, in whom I am well pleased. I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him, notice his, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth. Wisdom was walking around down here on the earth. Through the creation, he was present before the creation, but now he's walking around in the habitable part of the earth. But watch this. And my delights were with the sons of men. Did you know Jesus, the wisdom of God personified, was walking around in the habitable part of the earth, delighting in the sons of men? Do you see it? I believe this teaches us that Jesus, pre incarnate yet physically, was present at creation. Can you imagine it? Jesus taking the dust of the earth and scooping it up into the form of a man and then leaning over that figure and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. The Lord Jesus, He's the Creator. By him all things were made. Without him was not anything made that was made. None of that's us. That's us and that's He. That that he created us. I believe He had a hands-on approach, breathing into the nostrils of breath of life upon Adam's sin. You remember what the Scripture said? The voice. Of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day and the garden. who is the voice. Why, none other than the Word. I can just see Jesus taking a stroll through the garden that day. Adam, where art thou? Where art thou? He was there. I believe he was there. Christ, pre-incarnate, walking, it is he that has made us and not we ourselves. Not only has Christ formed the worlds, not only has Christ formed us, I'm glad one day he asked me the question, where art thou? And I came to know my own wretched condition and cried out to him. But Christ not only formed the worlds, he is the sustainer of all that he has made. Verse 3 tells us that he is upholding all things by the word of his power. May I say to you, That there are not enough diesel trucks or cans of hairspray or gassy cows on planet Earth to destroy it? Do you know that this morning? There's not enough of any of those things. I know what they try to alarm us about. The word here says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. God said in Genesis 8.22 that while the earth remaineth seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. By him all things consist, it says in another place. The word consist means to hold together. Jesus is holding this thing together. And man can't tear it out of his hands. I mean, since the very beginning, man's been trying to usurp the sovereignty of this planet. But I've got news for you. He'll never do it. And Jesus is holding it all together. Aren't you glad for that? I'm glad this morning there's not one single molecule out of place. <laughs> Second Peter 3.10 tells us, though, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Talk about global warming. There's your global warming. But I found it interesting as I studied this passage in Second Peter, that little word melt that's used there, here's what it means. To turn it loose. Right now Jesus is holding it together. There's coming a day when the last ransom of God's going to get into the kingdom, brother, and Jesus is going to turn it loose, and it's going to melt with the fervent heat, and the judgment of God is falling on this planet and everybody in it that refused to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus. He's coming back in flame and fire, taking vengeance on them who know not God and will not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank God, right now He's holding it all together. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Thirdly, notice with me the splendor of Jesus Christ. I've got to hurry now. He says, who being the brightness of his glory, who being the brightness of his glory. I've got to give you a little word of introduction concerning the words who being. The word refers to the state of one's existence. CWS, Complete Word Studies, points out that it does not, however, refer to the beginning of that existence. It just refers to one's existence, who being. He cites another occurrence of the term used in John one eighteen: No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him, which is in there. It's the same idea. It means the one who has always been with the Father. There was no time when that one began to be with the Father. Thus the term who being points us to the fact that what is about to be stated as true of the Son of God is not only true now, was not only true when this was written, but will forever be true of him. Who being, in other words, I am that I am. (laughs) You know everything he is, he's always been, and he'll always be. I'm glad he said, I am the Lord, I change not, aren't you? I thank God every day for the immutability of God. Everything around us is changing, but God never changes. Upon the word brightness, it means outraying. refers to light issuing from a luminous body. This, I think, gets us near the primary meaning of the word brightness. Just as the sun's rays are still of the same nature as the sun, so Christ is of the same nature as the Father. However, were we to have as direct contact with the sun as we do with the rays, we would be burned up. Christ allows us to see and enjoy the Father without being destroyed by his glory, just as the rays of the sun allow us to enjoy the sun without being destroyed by its heat. The same nature, same source, same essence. Then there's the word, the, 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 the connotation of the word that carries the idea of shining forth. It means radiance or effulgence. One lexicon defines it to flash forth. As you read your New Testament, as you read the Gospels, you ought to watch for those times when the Lord Jesus shined forth the glory and the brightness of the God of heaven. In his deity, when he would steal the waters, when he was transfigured, when he would heal the sick, in his humanity, when he would be compassionate, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. There on the cross, he could look at that crowd that had put him there and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do little flashes of the glory and the brightness of God the Father. The word glory here is doxa. It denotes the collective attributes of God, his essence. The sum of all that God is, is his glory. Therefore, Jesus is one who flashes forth the person of God in all his glory. It is because of this fact that Jesus could say, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Moses in Exodus 33 wanted to see the the glory, didn't he? He had a desire to see the glory, and God wouldn't let him. The desire that Moses expressed in his bold appeal is one that abides in the heart of every believer. Isn't that exactly what Philip was asking when Jesus said those words to him? Show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. He said, we just need a glimpse of God, and we'll be all right. And he said, there you are. If You've seen me. You've seen the Father. The brightness of his glory. The account of Moses is brought up again in 2 Corinthians 3. Paul brings... This, clear, this out by extolling the Lord for placing him in the ministry. He's especially thrilled that he has a part in the New Testament side of things. He mentions the ministration of death or the Old Testament and the law in verse 7. Yet, even with such a title, he describes it as glorious. <laughs> and it was. But it was not worthy to be compared with the glory that we find in Christ, God in the flesh. Now we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. He talks about here the express image of his person. The word express there is a Greek word where we get our word character. The word originally denoted an engraver or engraving tool. Later it meant the impression itself, usually something engraven, cut in or stamped. A character, letter, mark, or sign, this impression with its peculiar features was considered as the exact representation of the object. Though we had never seen the seal, we might from beholding the imprints of it, that which is exactly like it, form a true and accurate idea of the seal itself. You can't see God. He's the Spirit. But we can get a, a perfect idea of just who he is and what he's like by looking at the Lord Jesus. The express image of his person. A little phrase of his person. It's a Greek compound Greek word. It means to stand under. Oftentimes it's translated confidence or substance in Hebrews eleven one. Person only here in our text. Here it properly refers, Barnes says, to the essential nature of God, what distinguishes Him from all other beings, and which, if I may say so, constitutes Him God—the <laughs> express image of His person. All the things about God that make God God, Christ is the express image. Fourthly, the sacrifice of Christ is brought to bear in the statement, "When He had by Himself purged our sins." So much could be said. He's preaching the gospel to them, remember? When he had by himself. Let me just remind you this morning, Jesus doesn't need your help to save you. <laughs> He's the one that does the saving. He came into the world to save sinners. He shall save his people from their sins. He needs no help from humanity. He's a Savior all by himself. When he had by himself purged our sins, the word there has the idea of a ceremonial washing having been performed. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Titus 3, 4 4 to 7, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The washing of regeneration. When he had by himself purged our sins, Everything that needs to be done to get rid of your sin debt is done in Christ. Then finally, what the old Puritan writers called his session. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We still use this term. You ever heard them say, uh, anybody ever watch Judge Judy and she'll come up there and everybody has to stand until she sits down. And then when she sits down, they say, court is in session. Jesus' court is in session. He sat down. That wasn't supposed to happen by a priest. That was something they couldn't do. You wouldn't find a harder worker than a priest in the Old Testament economy. Just a butcher, just covered in blood, day in and day out, all day long, chopping and cutting and pulling. I mean, just working themselves to the bone, and the work was never done. But thank God when Jesus offered himself, he sat down because the work is finished. One sacrifice for sins forever. God's not looking for anything else. Jesus sat down, but that don't mean he's not doing anything. We just read up, He's upholding all things by the word of his power. He's still pretty busy. Amen. You know what else he's doing? He's interceding, praying for sinners. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him because he ever liveth, to make intercession for them. Oh, God, I've got to pray and save Savior this morning. I like to read the prayer that he prayed for me there in John 17. I believe God's answered that in the lives of his people. He's drawn us. He's saved us. He's keeping us. And if he's done all of that, so far. I promise you he's going to do the rest. And one of these days as his people, we too will get to enter into his rest and into glory and we'll be be there. We'll see him as he is and we'll be like him the scripture says. All because God has spoken. Now what's this got to do with you this morning? What's this got to do with me this morning? If Jesus is all of this It means, first of all, we ought to be humbled that he wishes to be known by us to the extent that he would condescend and speak to his vile creatures. Then we ought to hear him. If he's so inclined to speak, we ought to be so inclined to listen. We ought to be so inclined to hear him. Then we ought to heed, we ought to obey. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. You're here lost this morning, and the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart and drawing you. Can I say to you, this Savior can save? That's what he came to do. He's a willing and an able Savior. And he said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Come to him this morning, he'll save you. Saying to God, Set your affections on him. Set your mind on him. Think about him. Humble yourself. Hear him. And just do whatever he says to do. But most of all, let's just worship him. What a Savior this morning. Amen, preacher.